it tests people's ability to adapt. And I think that's probably the best thing about defense people is that we're used to things coming left and right, getting in the way, but we move on despite them. And COVID is just another challenge for us to overcome. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. We've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. I'm Sharon Maskeldare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. Today, we meet Flight Lieutenant Benedict Farrell, who's also known as Eggs, and who currently is on his first deployment to the Middle Eastern Area of Operations as a logistics officer. He's a linguist and also has a background having worked in business. Now, can I call you Eggs when I welcome you to Life on the Line, or would you prefer to be called Ben? Uh, eggs is eggs is perfect. That's what I'm known as now. It's part of my uh, enigma, I guess. And it has to be said, of course, Eggs Benedict. Um, pretty predictable nickname there. For some reason, I grew up being called Ben and then I decided one day I, I'm Benedict now. And people found that frustrating to say. I think I had too many syllables. So when I went through officer school, they decided that Eggs was the most applicable name. So here I am, full of golden centres, I guess. Well, welcome to Life on the Line. So first of all, let's just go back to where the whole journey began. Tell us a bit about where you grew up and whether you have a military background. Yeah, so I grew up in um, East Bentley in uh, Melbourne. I am the youngest of eight children and the most direct military influence to me was my dad, who was um, a Vietnam veteran. My brothers had this in-depth interest in military history and consequently the discussions around the uh, dinner table often fell back to them. On top of that, my sister decided to take on a liberal arts degree. So when she learned a few things about the Vietnam War, for example, that took the uh, dinner table conversations to a whole other level. And my military exposure was basically through discussion and family experience. And on top of that, on my mum's side, there was a large amount of uh, military history. So I guess as part of our family psyche, there was always sort of a sense of purpose to be found in the military that relates to where we've come from and where I can go, I guess. Now, you said you're one of eight children. I can only imagine what that must have been like for your parents. It must have been chaos in your house. Oh, yeah, without doubt. We range like from one to like the, the oldest one is 16 years older than I am. So I guess for me, it was pretty good because being last in the family, I, I didn't just have one mum and dad. I had seven other people taking care of me. So, you know, I had a diversity of influences, so to speak. But the house was always chaotic and it was always two to three children in a room finding over seats on a couch or front seat of a car or, you know, family games where you'd be punched for, you know, leaving your rib cage open or something stupid. So we had a lot of fun. We also grew up on the back of a golf course. So that provided the opportunity for us to discover the golf course after hours, as children do. 
So with such a diversity of opinions and, and people in your family, what were the conversations around the dinner table growing up? I mean, did you talk about military service? Did your dad talk about his time in Vietnam? Dad didn't go into a lot of detail. He used to talk a lot about how good the Air Force was is probably the best point because he, he went in as army, but for whatever reason, something happened and he ended up being an attachment to 35 Squadron, being the Hercs. He attributed all of his uh, best experiences whilst in Vong Tao. In Vietnam, he attributed most of his positive ones to being to the Air Force. And I think that influenced me to join the Air Force eventually because I initially put in an application and was accepted to go to ADFA as an army cadet when I was 20. But I ended up turning it down in the end for a bunch of reasons. But when I went and reconsidered joining again, I just immediately thought, you know, from the experiences dad had, I'll definitely go Air Force because it sounds like it's going to be better. No offense to anyone else, any other services, of course. But in terms of diversity and opinion, yeah, you know, it was pretty hectic. I'm not going to lie. There were definitely some unfinished meals at the uh, dinner table when, you know, you had someone who was saying that, who involuntarily went into a conflict zone and his teenage children telling him that this is the current opinion of the conflict that you were involved in. So it was always interesting to be around that diversity and that experience in relation to it in relation to conflict as well that I guess spruiked interest in myself. I, I myself in my arts degree, also known as Bachelor of Attendance, basically worked as my own sense of investigation to go back and reflect on these conversations that I was around growing up and make sense of them myself. So it definitely made me think twice, but most importantly made me consider about making up my own opinion and my own decisions. So as you say, very much an independent thinker, very much a critical thinker from what you're telling us. And you decided then to join the Air Force. I mean, what was it about Air Force, particularly with those stories that you'd heard about your experiences with your dad? What did you think the Air Force stood for when you decided to apply? Well, I'll go back to one thing that is that my mother, so where my mother grew up in Ballarat, she used to talk again about military officers being this upper echelon of people, but in particular, Air Force officers. I'm not going to lie, that brushed a, an influence somewhere along there. I think when I was a bit younger, I decided Army would be, be me. You know, I was out there to prove something to the world by joining Army. And then I guess a few years later when I went Air Force, why Air Force? I think I was a bit more knowledgeable about the breadth of experience that they go through. I'm not going to lie when I say that I looked at the locations in which you can work and the possibility of life outside of defence. Those sorts of uh, ideas went into my mindset in choosing to go Air Force over the other two services. That and the fact that I have a fear of the ocean that is never going to be managed by any exposure to it. So that's driven my, my later decision when I was 25 to join the Air Force over Army. And Navy from the sounds of it. So Navy was pretty much out. That was a done deal from the start. Look, they do a lot of really cool stuff. It's just not for me. Definitely not for me. So Air Force it was, and you applied, as you say, in 2015 at the age of 25. You were sworn in in 2016, and then you went off to officer training school. What was that experience like? Uh, I guess it was uh, humbling, but more so than that, it was a test of character. It was a place where I thought to myself, oh, I've been selected, you know, I felt a little bit special going in. And then you get in there and realize you're just part of the pack and you're one of everyone else and you're only as good as those people around you. It was a lot of fun to be in this lifestyle that was entirely different to everything else I'd been part of, but it got me ready to be part of the machine, I guess, of defense. 
it also gave me an opportunity to really see how my personality would flex in a scenario where if you want attention, if you want recognition, if you want anything, you know, you have to work it amongst your peers to get that. And I love a competitive environment. So I enjoyed it for a lot of reasons and the tests that come through it at the time, they seemed horrible, but looking back, I mostly chuckles along the way, I guess. Was there a moment then perhaps when you were doing your officer training where you observed yourself changing, where perhaps, you know, some of your particular characteristics unique to you were challenged in that environment and you had to kind of rethink who you were? Yeah, yeah, most certainly. I think I never really tested my, oh, let's say flamboyance in a group setting as much as I had. And I I guess I was a bit afraid coming into defence because I knew I was a little bit on the fringe, so to speak, of what the stereotypes of defence were. And everyone was very concerned about appearing like they were in some sort of G.I. Jane film. And I was more concerned about not losing track of myself to fit that mould. And I really found myself saying things that when I thought back, I was like, oh, that could have that could have gone the other way. And I remember in particular, there was this one day we had this personality assessment and they wanted us to go in there and identify whether we were an introvert or an extrovert and whatever the other categories were. They divide us up in the room. And when they divided us up as well, they were like, oh, extrovert and introvert. And they put me in this extrovert corner and then as it end, as the day, as I continued to like break us down into our categories, I ended up just standing there on my on my own and being like, well, I am enjoying this because whilst you're all looking around at each other, I'm looking at looking back at you and I'm like, well, I'm not here for you. You're all here for me. So I kind of just took this thought that, you know what, despite these concepts that I've that some people walked in with or I have of myself, I actually within defense, I can be as free as I professionally can be. I do remember that moment being a don't hold back. There's a place for you as you in this organization. I think that's really interesting for some of our listeners uh, to this podcast, you know, because I think there's a perception in the community that defense is all about conformism and about having to subjugate yourself and your character and your strength of personality to something, something else. But what you've described there is, is really a sense of individuality and self-empowerment. Can you perhaps tell us a bit more about that? I think there's this misperception that defence is moving in this direction that we're becoming a diverse environment. And I think that it's performative. Whilst I really come from this place where in my experience, it's not that at all. It comes from a place of the more diversity we've got, the more input we've got, the more shapes of adversity we have to mould our future with. And I don't think that being stuck in this rut of like this, do that. This is how the rules are and that's how they'll be. And especially when it comes to individual behavior, I think that there becomes a way forward where we include that in the psyche of all people. And the more we can express that to the broader community, the more more attitudes, the more intelligence, the more individuals with more broad experience and more ideas of who can and can't be part of the organization, they get brought into it. I like to walk into a room where where I, I feel this sense of don't step out of the line. This is how you'll be. This is the outcome that will be. This is how you will behave. And I like to go into those rooms and just stir it up a little bit, but not in a not in a ridiculous way. I'm not waving a flag down uh, Oxford Street, so to speak. It's more of a, you know, here I am and more people can fill this seat but we're still going to get the same outcomes. You know, it's not detracting from the operational outcomes. So tell us a bit more about your journey then after completing your training. You posted to 28 Squadron. 
For people outside of Defence, just explain to us a bit about what 28 Squadron does and the work that you did there. So I got posted to 28 Squadron as a interim posting. I actually got recruited into Defence as an intelligence officer. And while I wait for my security clearance to go through, they put you in an interim posting. 28 Squadron at the time, and I'm pretty certain it still has this function, it was a military public affairs squadron. First part of my time there, I was working in um, well public affairs ops section, so allocating personnel to certain tasks, public affairs tasks that is, of course, so photographers or the public affairs officers. And then eventually I moved on to doing defence assistance to the civil community requests. I'm not going to lie, it wasn't the most uh, imaginative of roles. It was basically writing briefs for approval. But in saying that, we were writing up these briefs to give approval for defence to participate in civilian activities. So that, that was good fun. It was good exposure. And then after I spent 12 months there and there was no real traction on my security clearance, I decided to say, hey, is there something else I can do? What else can I get involved with in defence? And I ended up spending four months at um, Defence Force School of Languages in Melbourne studying Urdu, which is Pakistani, I guess, their, their national language, similar-ish to Hindi too. So I spent my time there as well. That was a challenge more so in many ways than OTS. I'll have to be honest, because when I was trying to learn another language, I discovered how much of English I didn't know. I consequently had to then relearn what it means to speak out my own language to uh, every day (laughs) to then breach into Urdu was just, yeah, another experience altogether. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I've interviewed a few people who've been through the School of Languages and they all talk about a similar experience of the sheer intensity of the work that's required to be able to learn a language in such a relatively short period of time. The thing about the Urdu course as well was that, you know, it was a very small, intense course, but you had to relearn, you had to learn a script as well. And a script that I, writing and writing and reading Arabic essentially, and, you know, you'd spend half your day doing that and then the other half doing the conversational stuff. And I was in the room with another gentleman who was a native Indian speaker and another gentleman who had done Pashtun. So between them, one of them already knew pretty much all the script and then the other one knew most of the language. So on either side of me are these two people who were outperforming me. And as someone who's quite competitive, I found it very intimidating uh, <laughs> to be in this environment where I was so out of depth. But the good thing was, is that, again, I found myself latching on to both of them and trying to drain as much information as I could. And, you know, eventually I developed the skill to get into any cab in Australia and talk to the taxi driver. But more importantly, I should say, learning that uh, language got me into into an exercise up in Darwin called Exercise Kakadu. There was a Pakistani P3 aircrew who came through and they participated in, in the activity. And I, I basically acted as a a bit of a liaison between them and the Australian task unit headquarters for all of their, I guess, their needs, be it aircrew related, ops related or basing arrangements. The part of it that was probably the, the, the most funny, I guess, was that in Pakistan to be an officer, to go through their officer school, you have to have English as a primary language. So I was selected to go and do this exercise because I could speak Urdu. But then on the other side of that, I those people could already speak English just as well as I could. So I was like, oh, phew, I don't have to try and fumble my way around these conversations with my Urdu because their English was impeccable. So I was very relieved when I got there. What was it like, though, the first time you found yourself speaking Urdu? Because I imagine you did give it a crack in that environment and think to yourself, my goodness, four months ago, I couldn't even speak this language. And and now I'm actually using it 
as part of a major exercise. Yeah, that was a pretty funny moment because it was an 06 who piloted the uh, Pakistani P3. And at the time, I owned an 02 flying officer and, and he walked out and I was like, oh no, like the first things I'm going to say to this guy in Urdu and he's just going to look at me like I'm some sort of stranger. And I, I did panic a little bit. I spoke in Urdu to him and he responded in English. So I spoke in Urdu again and he spoke back to me in English. And I went a third time in Urdu and he just cut me off and goes, it's okay, we can speak in English. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I tried. I tried my best. And then after that, it actually became kind of between myself and them. They thought it was not, I don't want to say endearing, but they did use it as a, a point of bonding between myself and them. And we became quite familiar and it made the relationship a lot more casual because because, you know, they could have little jokes with me in a room where no one else knew what was being said, but I could understand them or whatever it was. So I felt like I was part of their little clique, despite not being all that confident in my Urdu. It was good fun. So you then decided to transfer out of intelligence and move into logistics. So why did you choose to do that? Well, it was a combination of the long, long time frame that was rolling around for my intelligence career to get started. Two years since I joined and my clearance hadn't come through. So I essentially, when I pushed the organization to say, hey, when can I start my Intel career? And they said, look, we still don't know. But at this stage, the best we can give you is that you will be graduating from your Intel career come midway through 2019 it was they were giving me and I was like you know that's three years after I joined I've, I've got to weigh up my options here I'm too keen I'm too eager to get going get started and Intel isn't everything so look beyond and just did some uh, soul searching spoke to my partner I've got a brother-in-law who's in the army and that my sister married and my partner's brother's actually a submariner in the navy too and I spoke with both of them and yeah it was a Pretty quick conclusion. I decided that logistics looks pretty good. So put my application in and within a couple of weeks, I was completing my transfer on my way to Adelaide and I was set to go and getting doing my IETs and there we are. Why did I choose logistics though as well? Look, I guess it goes into the diversity of the experiences. That was the one thing that everyone kept on drilling into me that as a logo, you'll move between a SPO to a project and the list of NEO, any officer roles that were open to me and released from your spec, your, your mustering, they had greater opportunities attached to it. So I just thought, yeah, here we go. Let's, let's see where this goes. It kind of linked in with my business experience before I joined too. I felt like it was a natural option and a natural choice. And yeah, here I am two years into being a logistics officer and I'm deployed into the ATG. So, And along the way, you participated in some other major exercises. After completing your logistics transfer, you went to Japan, you went to Guam. Tell us a bit about those experiences. I've also went to South Korea, which was probably of the experiences was one of the better ones. I did a planning conference there. It was for an exercise. To be in a country that's still technically in conflict was, I had to remind myself of that when I went there and they had murals on their walls that were very, I guess they were sort of contemporary because they resonated at the conflict that still exists between those two nations. That was a very uh, eye-opening experience or in terms of a military experience. Japan and Guam, I went to Annulex. With the P-8s, we went from Annulex in uh, Japan straight on to Guam with uh, two, two aircraft. Look, that was pretty good. When we were in Guam, they had this tropical weather incident go past and it meant that we had to stay in, in uh, Guam a few days longer than we expected. And the people on base were contractors. And I still remember we had this scenario where because of this, there were not a lot of people on base and we had to get our cargo moved around the base. 
for those of you that have been to Guam, you'd know that from one side to the other in a forklift is like a 30 minute drive. And we, as a consequence of this storm, we had to move all of our stuff by ourselves. And the local contractors on base were not equipped at all. They only had one person who didn't have any codes to gates and they didn't have the proper licenses. So myself and the supplier who were there ended up having to ferry this around the whole time. And it took from one side of the base to the other and we're loading it onto the back of this truck and he's driving it. And then I'd get around to the other side. I'd drive the car around and say, yep, I'll be there. And then they'd say, oh, we don't have the codes to get through this gate. And so I'd have to come back after waiting for like 20 minutes and this storm was going on and I'm absolutely drenched. And I'd spend my ages getting this dunnage, so the bits of wood that are under pallets out, totally, completely soaked. And I still remember as soon as the truck drove through the last barrier to go around to the air movement section to unload our last bit of cargo, the forklift was on its way around. I climbed back in my car and I turned on the key and the battery had gone dead. And I stranded on this other side of the airfield. And there was no one coming around because most of the airfield was empty. And I ended up having to walk my way around to the other side of the airfield and hitchhike through Anderson Air Base in Guam to try and get myself to a point where someone could go and help me collect my car. I, I still remember that was that was an experience where I thought, oh, it's always good to make sure that your equipment and that you've got all your plans sorted out because when things go wrong, you don't expect these sorts of things to happen, I guess. It was a bit of a wild, wild time being in Guam. And then after that, I went to January this year. I was in Red Flag as well in Nevada. So I was there for seven weeks at the start of 2020. And I was working in a task unit headquarters there supporting the other elements. So two squadron and the fighter jets, the Super Hornets from one and six squadron. The ramp up in the logistics world has got me overseas quite a fair bit in the last, yeah, 12 months. And now you're deployed to the Middle Eastern area of operations with the air task group there as part of Operation Accordion. Tell us a bit more about your role as part of the ATG. I'm the A43, which is the logistics operations role. Uh, I run a small cell. There's two other people in my cell. We look after the supply chain, ultimately, for what was three airframes in the Middle East, the KC-30, the E-7, and the C-130. On top of that, there was the ad hoc inclusion of the C-17, which is force assigned on as required. We are currently undergoing a drawdown of two of those airframes, the KC-30 and the E-7. So we're undergoing that currently and then the ongoing sustainment of the, the C-130 airframe. There's on top of that, there's two other ATG detachments or task elements in and and we support them as well through whatever requirements they come up with. It could be anything from uniforms or memorabilia or ongoing supplies into those locations. So my job is to assure the supply chain between the task elements. So in this instance, from now on, it'll be just the C-130 in the joint environment and advocate for the urgency of their demands and make sure that you know the supply chain isn't failing the asset. Or I shouldn't say failing, or is working as hard as it can to deliver the capability. But on the other side of that, we also look after the governance, which is the less Gucci, less interesting side of logistics, but it's also very important. So it has to be asked, what's it like doing your job over there amid the whole COVID pandemic? I mean, that must have changed the way that things are done over there in the Middle East. Yeah, it's definitely added some features to our outfits, our uniforms. We now uh, don the mask and the gloves on a, this is on a really superficial basis every time we you know move around base, but it definitely slowed up a lot of our access to supplies and parts and moving items in and around Australia to get them into the, the consolidation points to be moved to here. The COVID part has also restricted our ability to move on and off base. So 
I've only left base twice since I've been here and I've been here for 145 days. It's also really slowed down or restricted our ability to interact with each other. You know, everything from the way we conduct a trivia on a night of an evening through to the way that we position ourselves in the mess. Social distancing has really impacted the way that we conduct our day to day. It adds some small frustrations, but for the most part, most people just take it in their stride and get on with business. It's not a showstopper and most certainly it, it tests people's ability to adapt. And I think that's probably the best thing about defense people is that we're used to things coming left and right, getting in the way, but we move on despite them. And COVID is just another challenge for us to overcome. You just mentioned you've obviously been away for some time, 145 days so far, and I imagine you've got a few more to go. For people perhaps who don't have experience of that kind of lifestyle, what's it like being away from your friends and family for such a long period of time when you're deployed overseas? Yeah, look, it's pretty tough. I guess because the lack of breakup in our day-to-day activities, that constant communication to remind yourself that there is a world bigger than the four beige walls that surround us here that there are lives that we are a part of back home. It, you become very engulfed in everything about your work, that you're surrounded by the people you work with. Most of what you have to talk about is work. So to have that communication with back home reminds you that when this is over, you do have this phenomenal life to go back to. You do have your friends, your family to acknowledge that you've put your time in, you've done your, you've done your service. To make you feel like you are a part of something else than just your job, I think that's probably the most important part of this challenge, this deployment, is that although we are very well looked after here, you know, the food's great, we have hot showers and there's TVs. And the best part is that we do have the ability to communicate with home quite regularly. It is still good to know that they are getting on with their lives and that they are still able to keep you a part of them moving on. Now, before we leave you on this edition of Life on the Line Eggs, I just want to ask you just a a little bit more about your family background, because I know that that's very important to you in that you do have some family background that does go back to Western Europe. So tell us a bit about that. On my mother's side, my mum actually had her great-grandfather and three great-uncles participate in World War I. One of them was named Robert Fontana, and he actually was a cyclist who took the messages between the posts in the Somme, and he was there, I think he was there for two years. He was shot and killed in his messages on the Somme, and two years ago I got to go to the Somme and visit the site of his grave. And I know that for a lot of my siblings, they've all gone there too. Three of my siblings have made their way to France and have visited that site. And then on top of that, the other relatives were Edward and Eric Coulter and Ernie Fontana and George Fontana, who were in World War One in Egypt in the Eighth Light Horse Brigade. And my mum's uncle Ernie, he had this story that he was supposed to be considered for a VC, but didn't apparently meet the standards of the British officers at the time. It's some sort of family embellishment, I think. The story goes that in the field, he found a man who was requiring some assistance and a little bit of a Simpson and Donkey story. He put this man on the, on the donkey and sent him on his way. And that man actually went and found, remembered, sorry, that the last name was Fontana. And he ended up, that gentleman whose life he saved, he ended up naming his son Fontana as a tribute to him. In time, they found the son of that man, Fontana, found Ernie Fontana and completed the cycle, so to speak. There's that little bit of family history that goes into it. But the other part that doesn't get talked about so much was that I don't think that they were the most gentlemanly of soldiers back in the day in Egypt. So it's a good point in our family. Whenever we go to the War Memorial, we do have that linkage. 
Well, Flight Lieutenant Benedict Farrell, or Eggs, as you're fondly known, thank you so much for joining us on Life on the Line. You've clearly had a very colourful career and brought a whole diversity of views and experiences to our listeners today. Yeah, it's been great. I'm really grateful for the experience to pass on my experiences on to those who aren't in defence and hopefully more people from more experienced backgrounds continue to come into the organisation. So I think it's been a great decision for me and I encourage it to most people. I'm Sharon Maskeldare and you've been listening to Life on the Line. Subscribe to this show in your podcast app and on YouTube to never miss an episode with Joint Task Force 633 and the other incredible stories of Australian veterans from our Army, Navy, Air Force and Special Forces. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can contact us by emailing podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...